Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment, and this is the Gun Guy. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're thrilled that you're with us. We've got a lot of uh, broadcast choices going on here this afternoon. <laughs> a lot of basketball. IU played, I thought, a fabulous game against Kansas. They felt a little short at the end. We've got a Colts game going on right now. Uh, Purdue, I believe, is playing, uh, as we speak, number one team in the country. So there's a lot going on. But as I put on social media, I said, hey, and I've been known to do this a lot. There's nothing wrong with with having a, you know, a sports team you want to follow on the TV, turning down the sound, turn down the volume, turn the radio on to what it is that you want to listen to on the radio or live stream on your phone or your computer at WIBC. But for those of you listening, I'm thrilled that you're here. We're going to take your calls throughout the show, as we always do, 93 93- uh, that's 239-9393, 317-239-9393. Got a lot to go into. And I got to tell you, I, I just read a story, and this was on BearingArms.com. And I, I read this, and it really, it hit me really hard. And and in fact, it it registered with me to a large degree why, made me realize to a large degree why, I'm so passionate about Second Amendment rights because I believe fundamentally in the ability to defend your family, defend your home, defend your life. And I've had a thing for pretty much my whole life. I mean, from my earliest memories, I've I've had a real issue with bullies. Not me personally. I'm a big guy, an athlete through school. I've never been bullied, but... I've always had a problem with bullies, and, I, and there were a lot of bullies that, you, know, you saw in grade school on up through high school. And my sisters had some issues with bullies, and, and it just really, it really impacted me in the sense that I've always prioritized, since my early days, I've always prioritized the ability to defend yourself. And that translated directly into the the legal capacity, the legal ability, legal justification for defending yourself. And that's, to a large degree, why I do what I do as a Second Amendment attorney focused primarily on self-defense issues. is because an innocent person, a law-abiding citizen, ought to have the ability to defend themselves and the capacity and the legal authority to defend themselves. And so the story that 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 really it hit me pretty damn hard. I just read on bearingarms.com and uh this is uh a really good website. You really you should follow it. They have a VIP membership to read just some of the articles, but for the most part it's free. 
if you just want to go to the free portion of the website. But I was reading this article about so-called gun-free zones that they have uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. And Missouri isn't horrible on gun rights. I wouldn't put them up with Indiana. But not bad. But they do have some quote-unquote gun-free zones that we certainly don't have here in Indiana. And that includes on public transit, including their public bus system. And here in Indiana, uh, there's no such law. There's no such restriction. In fact, if a local government wanted to impose such a restriction, if the city of Indianapolis, for instance, wanted to say, well, you can't have a gun on Indigo or whatever, any other form of local transit, then that would be illegal because local governments can't regulate firearms under the Preemption Act. We've talked a lot about how some of the liberal Democrats are trying to get around that with a, a bill in the Indiana General Assembly. Well, would not include this. And, 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 and so one of the reasons, again, I, 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 I always think we ought to step back every now and then and really give thanks and give acknowledgement to the fact that a lot of states, even some generally conservative states, some generally pro two A states, and this includes one. This this includes states that you know people always say, "Oh, well, really pro gun states like Texas." Well, there are a lot of pro gun states out there that have a lot of laws, a lot of restrictions on Second Amendment rights that we don't have here in Indiana. And the credit for that goes to the Indiana General Assembly. As much as we like to beat up on legislators, including right here, I I hear a lot right here on this radio station. As much as we like to beat up on legislators on the issue of 2A rights, we've done a pretty fabulous job in the Indiana General Assembly. I say we, I've never been a legislator, but I work with them a lot. The Indiana General Assembly has done a pretty fabulous job of protecting gun rights, including just last year passing constitutional carry. And, and one of the examples of that is we don't have a law that bans, prohibits, makes illegal possession of a firearm in public transit. So what's the story, and, and, and why did it hit me so hard? Well, it was a show, uh, uh, a story just published that was talking about a person who was on a, a bus, the men, Metro Transit System in St. Louis. And this is a transgender person. Now, however you feel about transgenders or transgender rights or whatever, I, I has no, no bearing on this story. Except this person obviously began being bullied on this bus. And in St. Louis, the public transit system is a quote-unquote gun-free zone. And here after this next break, I'll talk, I'll talk more about gun-free zones. Because and as I've explained before, and I'll go into in some detail after the break, there's really no such thing as a gun-free zone. It's a complete fallacy. It's a fiction. It's like a unicorn. It doesn't exist. And I'll explain exactly why that is. But St. Louis has declared their public transit system to be a quote-unquote gun-free zone. So law-abiding citizens are not able to have the capacity to defend themselves, at least not with a firearm. So what happened? This person is on the bus, and somebody gets on the bus, comes, comes back, and sits next to them. 
You next thing they know, they're berating this person. They stand up. They begin striking them. And the 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 victim, the trans transgender individual, identified as as Sydney Maisie. And the person begins assaulting them, and at one point pulls a gun out. Oh no! Wait, you mean criminals don't follow the rules when it's a gun-free zone? Uh, no, uh, shockingly, no, they don't. And as he continued to threaten him, her, whatever applies, I mean no disrespect from that, I just, whatever's appropriate. At one point, the quote was, and, and witnesses heard this, the quote was, nobody's going to help you here. And I read that quote, and that was just bone chilling to me. No one's going to help you here. And, and, and in large part, and we don't know exactly what was in this idiot's mind as this person bullying some victim on the bus. We don't know exactly what was in their mind. But don't you think, in large part, the comment, no one's going to help you here, is because they knew it was a gun-free zone? They knew they could bully, assault, commit whatever violent crime they want to because no one's going to help you here. Because the government decided that law-abiding citizens shouldn't have the capacity to carry a firearm in order to defend themselves. That right there, that right there in, in my mind is a perfect microcosm for why I fight so hard to oppose gun control. Because criminals don't care. Did this, did this criminal, violent criminal, care that a bus was a so-called gun-free zone and say, of course they didn't. That's why they had a gun. But it gave them that much more confidence to assault an innocent victim. And not only that, but to gloat, to stand over them saying, no one's going to help you here. We're at the quarter hour. I'm going to talk more about so-called gun-free zones. And if you haven't heard it before, I will explain completely why there's no such thing as a gun-free zone. Literally, no such thing. But I'll do all that when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. Give us your calls, 317-239-9393. We always want to take our calls from uh, our listeners throughout the show, as we always have. Uh, give us a call, 317-239-9393. In the meantime, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Second to none on the Second Amendment. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Ralford on 93 WIPC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. So I'm talking about this assault, again, of a transgender person. And, and you know, however you feel about transgender issues, uh, nobody, I don't care who they are, uh, deserves to get assaulted on, on public transit or anywhere else. And everybody's got a basic right to exist peaceably and be left alone. 
again, that's a big reason why I'm so passionate about self-defense. And, and, and it's so chilling to me that the person assaulting this victim on a public bus in St. Louis literally looked at his victim and said, no one's coming to help you here. And see, that right there sums up why so many of us are so passionate about self-defense. I, mean, I have a good friend uh, who, uh, who who runs a, a, a great accessory business uh, called Hiding Hilda. This is Don Hillier. And Don, Don was a stalking victim. And she decided, uh, and by the way, she was the victim of the first person convicted of, of a, at the time, the new felony stalking law that was passed in Indiana. They put this guy in, in prison for quite some time because he was not only a stalker, he was a violent stalker. But in the, in the process, she decided to buy a firearm and then decided that there weren't all that many great carry options for, for ladies who want to carry a firearm. And so she started designing purses and, and, and um, fanny packs and other ways for ladies to comfortably and securely carry a firearm. And, and that's what her business is now. Uh, and again, no commercial relationship between me other than Don's a friend of mine. And she decided she was just no longer going to be a victim. That's the reason she began carrying a gun. And it's just a great example. But when the government, whether it's the St. Louis City County Council or whatever it might be, anywhere else says, well, we need to keep people safer, so we're going to create gun-free zones. And we hear that all the time right here in Indianapolis, where I'm broadcasting from. Oh, well, we're going to barricade off Broad Ripple and make it a gun-free zone. Right. That never actually happened, I think in large part because several of us threatened to sue the, the bastards if they tried to pass any such thing. But when the government says, well, we're going to keep people safer by creating these gun-free zones, it always comes to mind something I've been talking about for decades, and that is that there's no such thing as a gun-free zone. It literally doesn't exist. And why do I say that? Well, let me tell you what, what zones there are out there when it comes to firearms. I'll tell you exactly. There are places where only law-abiding citizens can have guns. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the secure area of the airport. Why? Because there's a metal detector, and there are people with guns there to enforce the fact that you can't illegally take a gun into that area, into that zone, if you want to use that term. It's not a gun-free zone because there are people there with guns to enforce the fact that you can't illegally possess a gun there, so it's not gun-free. Well, what else is a, is, a, is a place where only law-abiding people can have guns? A prison. Doesn't mean occasionally someone doesn't sneak one in, but for the most part, they have security, they have metal detectors, they have body checks, they have pat-downs, they have this whole process to make sure criminals and anyone else doesn't illegally take a gun into that zone. So that's a place where only law-abiding citizens can possess a gun. Then there are 
zones, areas, wherever, locations, where everybody can have a gun because there's no security. And, and it's, in fact, legal in that area for law-abiding citizens to possess firearms. So there's no law or rule or anything else in, in place that prevents a, a person from having a gun there. So walking down the street, downtown Indianapolis, as I did tonight on my way to come do radio, am I carrying a gun? Yes. Am I within my legal rights to do so? Yes. Will criminals also have guns on the street? Yeah, that's the point. So in that area, we've all got guns, or we all potentially can. But in the meantime, as a law-abiding citizen, I have the ability to defend myself. And then there are areas where only criminals have guns. It's not a gun-free zone. Politicians want to tell you it's a gun-free zone. It's a, com it's a complete fantasy. It's a fiction. It's like the bus in St. Louis. Public transit's a gun-free zone in St. Louis. Does that mean the criminal didn't have a gun? No, he brandished a gun. He pulled a gun out. He pointed it at his victim as he was beating his victim, pointed a gun at them, and then essentially laughed at them, taunted them by saying, no one's coming to help you. Why? Because he knew it was a gun-free zone, quote-unquote. Did, did it prevent him from having a gun there? Of course not. He didn't care. He's a criminal. You know, you see a meme or a cartoon out there every now and then where there's a couple of guys and they've got they, they, they've got stocking masks on. They've got assault weapons, quote unquote, to use a political term that left tries to use against us. But they've got their rifles or their shotguns or whatever it is. And they're on the way in to, to rob a bank and there's a sign next to the door that says, no guns allowed. And they say, damn, shoot, can't rob this bank, can't take our guns in there. And it's a, it's a funny cartoon because it's ludicrous because, of course, by definition, no criminal's ever going to follow the damn policy of some bank or store or other business. And frankly, they don't much care about any other, quote-unquote, gun-free zone unless... There's security there and people with guns to enforce the gun-free zone. Did that exist in the public transit system in St. Louis? No. So what do you have? You have unarmed law-abiding citizens and you have armed criminals. Is it a gun-free zone? No, of course not. By definition, as proven by this example, the criminal still had a gun. He didn't care. So there's no such thing as a gun-free zone. There are some places where only law-abiding citizens can have guns. And there's a system in place to enforce that by, the way, people with guns. Places where you and I are on equal footing with the criminals because we can possess a gun. And there are places where only the criminals have guns because it's a gun-free zone. Now, I guarantee you there are people listening to my show right now who are going, well, guy, if there's no security and there's no metal detector no x-ray machine, I don't much damn care that it's a gun-free zone. I'm carrying my gun. I get you. I fully understand that. And the businesses that put up the, the no guns allowed signs, I tend to take those as a challenge. 
because I'll typically carry there all I damn want to, in large part, because in Indiana, it's not a violation of the law. I'm not committing a crime if I just violate some store, some business's policy that says I'm not to carry a gun there. Just like the hero of the Greenwood Park Mall, who saved countless lives, violated the Greenwood Park Mall policy of no weapons allowed. He wasn't breaking the law. He was completely within his legal rights. And in fact, because he chose to violate the Greenwood Park Mall's policy, saved countless, countless lives. Killed a guy with a rifle who still had 100 rounds of ammunition on him, who just killed three innocent people. But, but, but the example we're talking about here in St. Louis is it's really something to think about. It's something to think about for us as private citizens. It's something for politicians to think about. Because, quote, unquote, gun-free zones that are not backed up by people with guns and security measures are just a recipe for allowing criminals to do whatever it is the criminals want to do with no resistance. And that's why this particular criminal was able to taunt his victim and look down at her and say, no one's coming to help you. And what I started to say about my friend Don Hillier, who runs Hiding Hilda, great accessories company, is at one point she was producing bracelets. And she gave me one of these just because she's my friend. She gave me one of these and it said, be your own hero. And that that hit me hard because that, at the end of the day, is what the Second Amendment's all about. It's about being your own hero. And when the government tries to step in the middle and say you're not allowed to be your own hero and you, in fact, should be a helpless victim to whatever criminal chooses to assault you, is where the rest of us have to, stay, have to stand up and fight against that kind of of regulation. That's a big part of why we exist here at the Gun Guy Show. In the meantime, we're past the bottom of the hour. We're taking a break. Give us your call, 317-239-9393. We're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it, but make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in Central Indiana for the Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. The show about gun rights, gun safety, and responsible gun ownership. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIPC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIPC. And one issue that gets a lot of attention, a lot of discussion, is quote-unquote safe storage of firearms. And listen, another issue I'm passionate about. I've been teaching gun safety and responsible gun ownership for a long time. I wrote a book on gun safety, gun safety and cleaning for dummies, which is about sold out, by the way. I just got less than a a dozen copies uh, still in print, and this is the last printing, so it's about to be the the end of an era, at least in terms of my own book goes. It's been out there for 10 years, and uh, it's about sold out. But at any rate, 
uh, gun safety is a, a very important part of responsible gun ownership, and that includes safe storage. And any gun safety class I've ever taught always includes the point and the emphasis. In fact, when I used to teach big classes in a so-called basic pistol class, I think it was slide number three, right at the beginning of the class, it said all guns should be stored so they're inaccessible to unauthorized or untrained people with a big emphasis on always. So if you're if you're a gun owner, that's how you need to store your firearms. And that's true in your home. It's true in your vehicle. It's true wherever you happen to be, whether wherever it is you have your firearms. And so notwithstanding the education that a lot of us try to provide on that issue, a lot of people don't do a particularly good job of storing their guns safely. And we have Far too many stories of little kids, small children, getting a hold of firearms and hurting themselves or hurting someone else. And and whenever we read one of these stories, it's always tragic. It's always heartbreaking, especially when a young child kills themselves or, or kills a sibling, hurts someone else. We had a, a story here just recently. I think it was a three- or four-year-old got a hold of a gun and killed their five-year-old sibling. Obviously, accidentally. And your first thought is, man, that's a, 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 a right there, that's so preventable. The gun just should have been stored responsibly, as so many of us have been preaching and it has, as so many of us practice. So because we see these stories over and over again, it's not surprising that occasionally, in fact, pretty much annually, we see bills get introduced, and some states across the country have passed these laws. But we see bills, we see bills get introduced that are so-called safe, safe storage laws to make it a crime to store your gun in a way where it's accessible to young children or to children, period. And there was just here this week uh, a story in, uh, I believe it was WTHR. Not a big fan of WTHR, especially after they did their complete ridiculous hit piece on Jason Hammer over the damages done at Camp Atterbury. That's a whole other discussion. But WTHR reported on a bill, uh, reportedly that's going to be introduced or that's already been filed. We'll see exactly what it looks like when this all gets made public after the first of the year. But State Representative Mitch Gore, Democrat from District 89, which is here in Indianapolis, as far as I can tell. He's an indie guy. And listen, he's a, a captain uh, for the Sheriff's Department. He's probably a guy that, that I wouldn't mind sitting down and ha having a beer with. But he's a Democrat, and he's introduced this bill, and it certainly can be called gun control, but it's a so-called safe storage bill. And it's a, it's a valid point, it's a valid challenge, to the extent that I have opposed these laws in the past, and I certainly have. It's, it's a completely legitimate challenge to me for someone to say, 
wait a minute, guy, aren't you being a hypocrite? You advocate safe storage. You wrote a book on gun safety where this point is specifically covered. You've taught a class, I don't know how many, hundreds, of, literally hundreds of times, where you emphasize that same point. Store your guns so they're inaccessible to untrained or unauthorized people. Isn't it completely hypocritical for you at the same time to turn around and oppose a law that simply tries to codify what it is that you've been preaching all these years? Is that hypocritical? Would this be an okay law? I mean, I've had people challenge me before and say, oh, well, you're not objective. If there's any law that has anything to do with gun safety, it just is a knee-jerk reaction. You immediately oppose it. I say, no, not at all. What I do is I look at a law and I say, will this actually affect criminals? Will it only affect law-abiding citizens? Will it actually keep anybody safer than they already are? And on that basis, let's evaluate any particular law that we're discussing. So where does this fall on that spectrum? I'll get more into that, and I'll get into why I do not support these laws and why uh, I will, I'm sure, oppose this law in the Indiana General Assembly, me and, and the 2A project, and explain exactly why that is. But I'll do that when we come back. In the meantime, if you want to join the discussion, give us a call, 317-239-9393, including, by the way, how do you feel about potential legislation to make safe storage a legal requirement that can put people in prison if they fail to comply. That's what we'll go into when we come back. Right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. The show about gun rights, gun safety, and responsible gun ownership. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Tell you what, we've had several people call in, so let's go to the phone lines before we, we return to our subject of quote-unquote safe storage laws. And uh, Joe has called in. Joe, you got a question? Yeah. Thanks, Guy, for everything you do for the Second Amendment. Oh, thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. So I want to sharpen my skills a little bit more. So are the $100 classes just as good as the $1,000 classes? Yeah, well, <laughs> it depends on where you're going because I've, I've taken both, Joe. And uh, it, it really it bears some research into who the instructor is, you know, what their reputation is, what it is that they're teaching, uh, what's the round count. You know, how many uh, instructors compared to how many people are there in the class? There's there's just uh, there's so many variables that it's really I don't mean to duck your question, but it's really uh, almost impossible to answer. I've actually gone to uh, just private training where I'm just taking one, two, maximum three people at a time because that way I can match my instruction to what their needs and wants are and, and what their current uh, skill level and knowledge level might be. And that way I'm not trying to do a one size fits all for, you know, a number of people in a class. And I, I just think that's better use of my time and, and we can get more done in a shorter period of time for the student as well. So 
uh, it really bears more research and, and probably a much longer discussion than we have time for right now, Joe. But um, I'd look into to class. If you want to contact me, you know, offline after the show or through social media or otherwise, I'll give you some more recommendations. Um, but I'm a I'm a fan of training. I've been an instructor for over 30 years, and I still try to take three, four, five, six training classes as a student every year. Because I keep finding instructors that are that, that are outstanding. I'll travel to go do it, and uh, and it's just worth doing. Because it, 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 like one of my favorite quotes is, "Education is the progressive discovery of your own ignorance." And a lot of people uh, attribute that to Einstein. Turns out it was actually some English playwright whose name escapes me. Um, but it's such a beautiful uh, comment because every time you take some training and, and you get some education, you realize that there are that many more skills you need to hone and that much more knowledge you can have. So I'm a training junkie. Um, so, um, that's near and dear to my heart. Let's go back to the phone lines and Dave has a question. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> hey, uh, All right. Yeah, well, uh, you made a comment about uh, places you can take a weapon and can't take a weapon. Uh, I think you're right about not being able to take a weapon uh, at the airport, but you also you also did not mention uh, taking a gun to the courthouse. No, I did not mention to, that. Uh, do you want to uh, let me know where I'm right or wrong? Well, it depends on the courthouse, and that's why it, it d depends dramatically. Like in uh, the new Justice Center uh, here in Marion County, um, yeah, there's there are armed guards and there's security and there's a metal detector, and um, that's how it is. And, and you go to other courthouses, uh, there are no metal detectors. And in fact, it's not. There's no. There's no law. There's no single law in Indiana, for instance, that says it's illegal to carry a gun into a courthouse. The Indiana Firearms Preemption Act says local governments, if they want to make it illegal to have um, uh, to have a gun in a building that contains a courtroom, that's how the, the statute is written, if they want to make it illegal, they can. But there's no single law for the entire state of Indiana that says you can't take a gun in a courthouse. So it's up to each local government not only to decide what what rule they want to have and whether they want to make it illegal to have a gun in a courthouse or not, but how they want to enforce it. So I, I've been to a, a whole bunch of county courthouses. I've now been in I've now been in all ninety two courthouses in Indiana. There are only ninety one judicial districts in ninety two counties, but there are ninety two courthouses. And I've been in all of them. Some have security, the vast majority have security, but not all. It's not even illegal in all courthouses to take your gun. So the 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 broad question, Dale of uh or Dave I should say. No, I think it was Dale. Forgive me. I'm looking at uh, at my computer screen. I believe it was Dale. Um, is almost impossible to answer because it varies dramatically county to county to county. We're coming up on the end of the first hour. We're going to go back to the phone lines when we come back. So uh, have patience. In the meantime, we'll be back in just a bit. We'll go back into the idea of safe storage laws. This is Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. This is the Second Amendment. And this is the Gun Guy. Boom, boom, boom. 
boom, boom, boom. Bang, 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 bang. Boom, 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 boom. Bang, bang, bang. With Guy Relford on 93 WIBC. And welcome back for hour number two of the Gun Guy Show here on 93 WIBC. We're glad you're with us. And I'll tell you what, before we return to the discussion of uh, so-called safe storage laws, uh, we've had uh, Antoinette, who's been on the uh, phone for quite some time, on hold. So let's go right to the phone lines. Antoinette, welcome to the Gun Guy Show. Thank you very much, and thank you for accepting my call. Sure. Uh, I called to... Um ask you about uh, the rights of um, 72 years old. Uh, For the second time, I reported the molestation of my grandson. Oh, no. And my whole family is against me. Uh, They don't want me to speak about the skeletons in their closet. But uh, the Greenfield police here have done all they could. Um, But uh, I'm really uh, contemplating um, purchasing a small firearm to protect myself because I fear them and they, the, I know what they're capable of doing. Um, so I was wondering if you could give me reference to an attorney that might also be able to help me uh, in Connecticut is where I'm originally from. And they used to have legal aid service uh, that attorneys would help people who are uh, low income um, and with their legal uh, problems. Yeah, um, and I know I appreciate the call, and I'm so sorry for all you're going through. Um, I would check first with your uh, county there locally um, to uh, see what legal aid services might be available. For inter- for instance, um, we have Indianapolis Legal Aid Society here in Marion County. Um, I would guess there's something similar there. Um, and uh, otherwise, rather than, than going to uh, maybe too much discussion on that here on the air, uh, you can also contact me offline. You can go to relfordlaw.com, and I'll see if I can't provide maybe a little more advice on uh, on the issue in terms of you uh, looking for help. And I'm sorry you're, you're going through all of that. Um, but let's get back to the discussion uh, that we were in there for a while before we went to the phone lines. And by the way, we love taking uh, calls from our our listeners, 317-239-9393. Let's talk about safe storage laws. And I asked the the sort of rhetorical question, uh, or maybe it's not rhetorical at all. uh, Am I a a hypocrite? Because I have opposed so-called safe storage laws. At the same time, I preach and teach and advocate strongly for responsible storage of firearms. And, and, And how do you how, how do you justify taking each position? And and I, first of all, I start from, from the position of you can't legislate responsibility. And you also can't pass laws that are so one-size-fits-all that you can potentially put people that are completely responsible and people that are being completely safe in jail because you're trying to reach some other person or affect some other person who is irresponsible. And you have to look at how broad the law is written. Now, I've not seen this bill. And again, it's a bill that State Representative Mitch Gore, and I've not met Mr. Gore. He just got introduced or rather elected in the General Assembly in 2020, it appears to me. 
and and so I've not I've not met him. Uh, the fact that he's on the uh, the Marion County uh, or in the Marion County Sheriff's Office uh, as a captain makes me want to uh, like him right off the bat and respect him as well. At the same time. What is it about a safe storage law that, that I don't care for? First of all, you have to look at the bill itself and see how it's written. And in the story on WTHR, where he was inter- interviewed and was discussing his bill, he said, well, you know, we've got some defenses in here. For instance, if you have a child in your home who's, who, who, who uses a particular firearm for hunting or for competition, like sporting clays, as I often uh, uh, I'm uh, thrilled to report here on the Gun Guy Show, the fastest growing high school sport in America, and including in Indiana, are the shotgun sports, trap, skeet, and sporting clays. So apparently, according to the WTHR article anyway, he's built in defenses to say, well, if you have a kid who's uh, who's a hunter and has their own rifle and, or whatnot, that's a potential defense to the parent who has a gun that's not locked up in a home with a child in it. But again, how broadly is this is is this law written? The bill written, for instance, a child is that everybody under eighteen? I mean, if I have a seventeen-year-old in my home who might be completely trained on the use of all my firearms, completely responsible, could teach a gun lesson to other people, but because they're under eighteen and I have a gun on my nightstand. And I say I have a break-in, so I call 911, and I say, yeah, somebody broke in my house. And officers arrive, and they walk in, and they see there's my 17-year-old. My kids are much older than that, but hypothetically speaking. There's a 17-year-old in my home, completely responsible, completely trained, completely competent with firearms. And they happen to notice that there's a, a handgun on my nightstand or more accurate in my current circumstance. There's a shotgun next to the bed. And that's not a shotgun this kid uses for hunting or for some competition. It's my self-defense shotgun that because I have a trained and responsible 17-year-old, I choose to leave next to my bed. And I have every confidence and every reason to believe that's a completely safe and responsible circumstance. The way I'm reading this bill I get a jail. I get arrested. I'm now a criminal because I have a gun on my nightstand. And I haven't seen the bill, so I don't want to be unfair because there may be someone listening right now who knows more than I do, or maybe Representative Gore himself. He's from here in Indianapolis. He's within the listening area, and he could be he could be sitting there going, no, you moron, it's only for 12 years and under, or who knows what, if there's some other limitation. It has to be a younger child. Hey, I've had 12-year-olds who come take my basic pistol class. In fact, I believe it was an 11-year-old took my pistol class many years ago. And I, I, it's funny because this comes up on my memories on social media every now and then on Facebook. And I always republish it because I love this. It was an 11 or 12-year-old, no, no older than 12, I'm sure. And a pretty little guy at the time, maybe younger than that, maybe 10. And he was the best shot in the whole class. Shot all bullseyes. And this is at an Eagle Creek pistol range before Mayor Hogsett threw the citizens who pay for the range out of there and made it 
IMPD only, so citizens just get to pay for it. We don't get to actually use it anymore, okay. But for a while, my company, Tactical Firearms Training, actually ran Eagle Creek Pistol Range, and I taught lessons out there. It was great. It was outdoor range. I always have enjoyed shooting outdoors. But this kid came and took my class and was the best shot in the whole class, shot all bullseyes. And I, and I posed next to him. I got to get down on one knee because on one knee, I was still taller than him. But we posed with his target. Same kid is now on the Purdue rifle team. Has a scholarship to Purdue for the shooting sports. But that same kid who had taken that class, if his parents have a gun on the nightstand when he's 10 or 11, and police discover that gun, it's not locked up, it's on the nightstand. It's there and available for their protection. Or they have a shotgun next to the bed like I do. They go to jail? They go to prison? Are they a criminal now? How do you legislate across all those variables, across all those contingencies? And how do you replace a parent's judgment with the judgment of the state to impose criminal penalties on what really is a matter of individual and personal responsibility? Not a fan of that. Not a fan. Not a fan. When you try to legislate responsibility, it's no better than legislating morality. It never works out. And you write laws that are too broad and can punish innocent people and law-abiding people who never endangered anyone. Now, is there is there a downside to not passing such a law? I mean, I have a hard time believing that someone who is already so irresponsible has to just leave a loaded handgun out where their two- or three- or four-year-old can get a hold of it. That, 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 that they're going to change their behavior because the state passes a law that suddenly criminalizes that behavior. I don't believe you're going to change many people's behavior. In the meantime, you're going to catch. And, and, and a lot of people, are a lot, a lot of responsible law-abiding gun owners are going to get caught up in a law that's simply written too broadly. Now, again, I don't want to be unfair. I've not seen the bill. No one's seen the bill because it's not published yet. That'll happen after the session starts, after here in a, a couple of weeks, January 1. And I'll have more to say when I read the specific bill. But I am not a fan of legislating on these issues for exactly the reasons I've gone into. In the meantime, we're here a little past the quarter hour. We're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. 
By the way, we want to continue to take your calls throughout the show. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. That's 317-239-9393. I want to talk about the fact that the Supreme Court of the United States, and again, they've been surprisingly active on 2A issues. They took the Rahimi case. Now, that was one where the government appealed because the gun owner in this case, Rahimi, won in the Fifth Circuit where the Fifth Circuit determined that the law that says if you're subject to a domestic violence order of protection, you can't possess a firearm. Fifth Circuit, which is the federal appellate court that hears appeals out of federal courts in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, they found that law to be unconstitutional. And that's under this new text history and tradition test that came out of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association uh, versus Bruin case just last summer. And they said, look, that we can't find historical analogs, historical examples of the same kind of laws that go back to the time of the founding and the time the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791, or the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, which made the Bill of Rights applicable to the states, which is 1868. And we look in that time frame, and we can't find similar statutes to say, well, if you're subject to this order of protection, then you can't own a firearm. So on that basis, it was unconstitutional. And we had the oral argument here just two or three weeks ago in the Supreme Court. And based on the questioning, a lot of people are predicting, in fact, I am as well, that the courts are going to reverse that and say, no, it was okay to preclude Rahimi from possessing a gun. And I think they're going to do so on the basis that while there may not be an exact parallel law that we can point to or laws that we can point to back in 1791 or 1868 or any time in between, talking about domestic violence orders of protection, that there were general laws regarding dangerous people or people who were known to engage in criminal activities and that the government can and should prevent them from having firearms. And I, 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 I'm curious about what the ruling is going to be, but I'm more curious about how broadly the opinion is going to be written. Because I think you're going to see the pendulum swing back a little bit on this text, history, and tradition test. But we'll have to see. I personally, and I listened to the oral arguments in that case, and I was, I was disappointed because the emphasis, I thought, was too much on the pure text, history, and tradition issue. And it wasn't enough on due process. And by due process, I mean the fact that in this case, and this, this was a situation in Texas, where this is a bad guy. And I think after I did a show or several segments on this, producer Carl put up an article that said something like, you wouldn't invite Rahimi over for Thanksgiving dinner because he's not a good guy. I mean, he's a violent guy. He had multiple women uh, that he was accused of assaulting. He was accused of firing a shot at a bystander as he was forcing a woman into a car. Um, He had multiple orders of protection uh, entered against him on behalf of multiple women. He just was a violent guy. And at one point, Chief Justice Roberts questioned his attorney and said something like, well, you're, you're not disputing the fact this is a violent, dangerous guy, are you? And the lawyer had to admit that he was, and none of that's good. But on that basis, if I were arguing that case, and it's easy to 
you know, armchair quarterback. But I was listening to that oral argument. What I would have focused on, I think, much more is the fact that this was a civil proceeding in Texas. That is this order of protection proceeding. It's a civil proceeding. It's not a criminal case. And that makes a huge difference because, first of all, the burden of proof was only preponderance of the evidence. That's just like 50.001%. Preponderance of the evidence to prove, for the state to prove, this guy should have an order of protection issued against him. In addition, because it's a civil case, there's no right to an attorney like there is in a criminal case. You say, well, I can't afford an attorney. In a civil case, they go, well, that's too bad. The other side has an attorney. You're just going to have to do the best you can in a civil case. So with no due process protections like you have in a criminal case, and with only a preponderance of the evidence standard that resulted in this order of protection having been issued against him, we're going to deny someone their constitutional rights on that basis. The, the text, history, and tradition issue, looking for historical examples of the same kind of laws, that works great in some circumstances. Here, I think the stronger argument was to look at the, the due process issues and the fact this guy shouldn't lose his constitutional rights, as despicable a guy as he might be, where it's only a civil proceeding that's nowhere close to a beyond a reasonable doubt standard like in a criminal case, and he didn't even have a right to have an attorney appointed for him and, in fact, did not have an attorney at the hearing where this was issued against him. That, to me, really ought to be the focus. But the Supreme Court has been very active. They took the Rahimi case. We'll see what they do with it. They took the Cargill case. In fact, I had Mr. Cargill here on the show. Producer Carl was able to arrange where this is the guy who's challenging the bump stock rule that came out of ATF at the direction of then-President Trump after the Las Vegas shooting. Oh, no, bump stocks, they're gone. I've told the ATF, make those illegal. It was a horrible precedent. Horrible, horrible precedent. And I, it breaks my heart that that came from a Republican president because the ATF did exactly that. And what have we seen from the ATF since then? The Not just bump stocks, but since then, pistol braces, so-called ghost guns, manufactured firearms, firearm parts. And it goes on and on from there. ATF is using that precedent and running with it. But the Cargill case is challenging the ATF's ability to have passed what essentially is a law that can put people in prison and is saying that that violates what we call the vesting clause of Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution. Article One, Section 1 talks about the legislature. It says, the legislative power shall rest solely with the Congress of the United States comprised of the Senate and a House of Representatives. So the legislative power, that is passing laws, that resides in Congress, not in the executive branch, and that's what an administrative agency, an executive agency like the ATF or the IRS or the EPA or any number of these, of these alphabet soup agencies, they have the power to pass their own regulations that can put you in prison. Tell me there aren't people right now in prison because of IRS regulations or EPA regulations. Well, same is obviously true of ATF regulations. 
So that's the Cargill case. Well, the Supreme Court, and again, the Supreme Court's already taken that. We'll, we'll hear argument on the Cargill case here after the first of the year. What they just did here a couple of days ago is they declined to enter an emergency stay on the Illinois, quote-unquote, assault rifle ban. And a lot of people I see on social media are sort of wringing their hands a little bit, saying, oh, no, this is a terrible sign. They're, gonna, they're not going to address assault weapon bans, or they're going to find these to be unconstitutional, or Congress can pass an assault weapon ban. And this is all based on Supreme Court not having taken this particular case on the issue of should they enter an emergency stay to prevent that law from going into effect. I'll get more into that when we come back. Right now we're taking a break. Give us uh, your questions and comments on the phone. Give us a call, 317-239-9393. Give us a call and join the discussion, 317-239-9393. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WIBC. Hey, thanks for checking out the podcast. We appreciate it. But make sure you join us live at WIBC.com to stream or at 93.1 FM in central Indiana for The Gun Guy Show every Saturday, 5 to 7. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. NRA certified firearms instructor. He's the gun guy. Guy Relford on 93 WIPC. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford on the Gun Guy Show on 93 WIPC. I'm talking about the fact that the Supreme Court declined to enter what essentially called an emergency stay to prevent the new Illinois assault weapon ban from going into effect. And a lot of folks were sort of wringing their hands over this, saying, oh, no, this bodes poorly for what the Supreme Court might ultimately do on an assault open ban. And I don't read it that way at all. Because what's going on is there, there's, there's a petition for review, what's legally called a petition for certiorari. It's been has been filed on this, and, and there's going to be a, a, a formal request that the Supreme Court take the case and rule on the merits of whether an assault weapon ban, or at least this particular assault weapon ban, violates the Second Amendment or not. And the Supreme Court, before they decide on whether to take the case on the merits, can separately get petitioned to say, oh, well, in the meantime, before you even take the case, it's, it's so clear this is unconstitutional, you ought to go ahead and take it and, and prevent the law from even going into effect. And the Supreme Court rarely, very rarely, any appellate court, including the Supreme Court, takes that drastic of a step so as to put a stay on a law before it goes into effect and before it even decides whether to take the case. So I say that only to, 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 to mention that while I think the pendulum is going to swing back a little bit with this Rahimi case, and I hope it doesn't, 
uh, as I've said many times over, I was always nervous about the Rahimi case on the domestic violence orders of protection because Rahimi's a bad guy. And there's a long time saying among lawyers that bad facts make bad law. And the fact that Rahimi himself was a violent, somewhat despicable guy, a lot of us were very worried. We're going to lead the justices to give us an opinion in that case that takes a step back a little bit on gun rights. And a lot of people came out and said, oh, guy, you don't understand. You know, there's a reason that Lady Justice and all the statues is blindfolded is because the facts don't matter. It's all about the law. And I said, yeah, I fully understand that concept, but it's a little naive. And when Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, said, well, you don't really deny this is a violent guy, do you, to Rahimi's own lawyer, I think that makes my point. Now, we don't know what they're going to rule, and we'll see how it goes. But whatever rule law they come out with, and while the pendulum may swing back a bit, I still think it's a very tough road to hoe for the government to support an assault weapon ban, quote-unquote. That is, take a particular class of firearms, the most commonly owned rifles in America included within that class, and say, oh no, this entire class of firearms is illegal. What's a historical analogy for that? What's a historical example of that? And the things you hear from the White House, by the way, like a lot of the idiocy you hear from this White House, where, where where Biden will come out and say, well, even the, at the time the Second Amendment was written, you couldn't own a cannon. Well, hell, yes, you could. Hell, yes, you could. There were privately owned merchant men ships that were fully equipped with cannon. Individual militias and individual towns and states could not only organize as militias, they could own their own cannon. Hell, yes, they could own cannon. So I think it, it, it's a very difficult, I think, uphill fight for the government to support an assault open ban. I, I think, and hopefully it happens sooner than later, certainly hope it happens in my lifetime, we see a Supreme Court ruling that says a so-called assault open ban is completely unconstitutional under the Second Amendment. I, I expect that to happen. So if you're, if you're concerned with the fact that the Supreme Court did not enter this emergency stay to prevent... Illinois' law from going into effect, eh, don't hang crepe quite yet. Don't hang the black banners uh, on the Second Amendment quite yet. I think we're going to be just fine on that. In the meantime, it's been interesting to look at some of this litigation across the country, including on so-called high-capacity magazines, what you and I would call a standard-capacity magazine. I mean, I've owned several ARs. I still own several ARs, AR-15s. And every time I've ever bought one, they came with a 30-round magazine. That sounds like a standard capacity magazine to me. And there are a lot of these laws out there that want to ban not only so-called assault weapons. Again, you and I know that's a political term made up to demonize the most commonly owned rifles in America. But hand-in-hand with the assault weapon bans tend to come so-called high-capacity magazine bans. We're going to take a break here in just a bit, but when we do, when we come back from that, I'm going to go into the fact that that there's litigation going on in Colorado under over Colorado's so-called high-capacity magazine ban. And a lot of these things, whether it's an assault weapon ban or a, again, I hate to even use the term assault weapon because 
it is a simple political term, and I hate to use high capacity because it's not high capacity, it's standard capacity. But having said that, whenever we talk about those issues and we look at these particular bills, they tend to have carve-outs for law enforcement. Say, well, this doesn't apply to the military and to law enforcement agencies because they can have so-called assault weapons and they can have high-capacity magazines. There was an amicus brief, that is a friend of the court, brief. The full term is amicus curiae, for friend of the court. And that's where even though you're not a party to litigation during an appeal, you can come in and file a brief to support one side or the other. And you certainly see this at the Supreme Court all the time. On Second Amendment, a Second Amendment issues, when a court goes up, when a case goes up to the Supreme Court, there may be 20 or 30 amicus, the plural of which is amici. There may be a gazillion of them. And, and, you know, and, and the courts, courts go through that. And it, it can be an effective way because you have page limits and whatnot for your, your brief as a party. Well, if you have arguments you want to make, you can leave those to a friend of the court. Well, there was a, an amicus brief filed by, a, in fact, a law enforcement agency, several law enforcement agencies in Colorado on the issue of is a high-capacity magazine ban, let's put that in quotes, constitutional or not, and I was fascinated to see the position that these law enforcement groups took on that issue. A little bit of a separation from what you might expect to hear from law enforcement, and I was really glad to, 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 to read it and see it, and I'll go into that in a little more detail when we come back. Right now, we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC. show about gun rights, gun safety, and responsible gun ownership. This is The Gun Guy with Guy Relford on 93 WIPC. And welcome back to the last segment of today's The Gun Guy show. It's nice to have a not only a show, but the full two hours. It's kind of nice. Uh, we're glad you joined us. Um, I, by the way, don't anybody tell me the score of the Colts game I'm I'm taping it. I'm going to watch it when I get home. I'm a huge Colts fan, if you know me. I've been a Colts fan since they moved here in 1983. I've seen the Colts play in something like 28 different NFL stadiums. Uh, Big, big fan. Season ticket holder for 30-some years. And uh, I'm I'm not at the game because uh, I'm here doing the Gun Guy show. Uh, But I'm going to watch it on tape later on, and I'm hoping to get get all the way home without anybody letting me know (laughs) Who won or lost? Because <laughs> I want to watch it like it's uh, it's new news. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I mentioned this uh, friend of the court brief filed by Colorado law enforcement. And and listen, a lot of times when people talk about law enforcement's position on given issues, for instance, you know, on on constitutional carry here in Indiana, how many times have you heard from the media and from politicians like uh, Joe Hogsett? Uh, and others, uh, including the quote-unquote Republican, Jefferson Shreve, oh, law enforcement opposed constitutional carry, and I stand with law enforcement. Well, it depends on what law enforcement you're talking about. A lot of times people want to portray law enforcement as being completely unified on any given position. And listen, I was there. I testified 
at the public policy committee hearing on constitutional carry, and we had more law enforcement officers come in and support constitutional carry than there were there to oppose it. Now, is it true that Doug Carter, superintendent of state police, a man I respect a lot, and he and I consider him a friend, but we could not possibly disagree more on constitutional carry, did, did he oppose it? Yes. Did, did a lot of appointed police chiefs oppose it? Yes. Did a lot of elected sheriffs, including the sheriff of Hamilton County, in fact support constitutional carry? Absolutely. And Dennis Quickenbush, sheriff of, of Hamilton County, came in and testified at both committee hearings. So law enforcement you know, is comprised of individuals like any other profession. And when people say, well, law enforcement opposed this or law enforcement didn't support it, a lot of times they try to say that in some universal tense that's not even appropriate or accurate. And so I don't want to say this was all law enforcement. There was a group of... Uh, law enforcement, including the Colorado Law Enforcement Firearms Instructors Association, the Western States Sheriff Association, and 10 different elected Colorado county sheriffs. And again, county elected sheriffs are always going to be, in my mind, those you can really look to for support of the Constitution. You know why? Because they're elected directly by their voters. They're not appointed. They're not political appointees. They They owe nobody for their job other than the voters in their county. And so they have, they have two loyalties, two allegiances to the constitutions of the state and the United States of America and to the voters. That's it. That's why I love listening to sheriffs and their position on issues as opposed to political appointees. But the Western State Sheriffs Association, 10 different elected sheriffs, wrote this amicus brief on this issue of high-capacity magazine Ban, the ban that they wanted to put in, 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 they have, in fact, instituted, or at least trying to in Colorado. And what do the sheriffs say on this? Their, their amicus brief is really fabulous. In fact, you can find a great article on this at bearingarms.com, which I mentioned earlier. And it says, the magazine ban attempts to divorce today's common arms of law-abiding citizens from today's common arms of law enforcement officers, including sheriffs and their deputies. This divorce, contrary to the wishes of both parties, endangers citizens and officers alike. And they go on to say, the magazine ban and its sponsors repeatedly make the claim that such magazines have one purpose, that is, to kill a large number of people quickly. This false characterization has never been challenged by any legislator appropriately. And it's a pernicious notion that Colorado law enforcement routinely carry arms for the one purpose of mass killing. That's a great point. I love it to death. Right now, we're at the end of the show. We hope to come back next week. Guy Relford on The Gun Guy Show on 93 WYBC.